Should Governments Build Stadiums? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Moshe Lander. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Moshe Lander. Moshe is a senior lecturer in the Department of Economics at Concordia University in Montreal. He is a recognized expert in international economics, public economics, and uniquely the economics of professional sports. Moshe appears regularly across Canadian media platforms, whether on radio, TV, podcast, or in print, on a variety of economics and policy-related issues. He grew up in London, Ontario, so he's a fellow Canadian, and he's lived in Alberta for the last 20 years. Moshe, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to have you on. So Moshe, we base each episode of ours on a question and just go wherever the conversation answers take us. Our question today is, should governments build stadiums? And many claim that governments should invest in stadiums and investment projects of the entertainment sort. But before we explore your critique and analysis of the case, I want to make the case for the folks that say this, actually, so our listeners can sort of understand what you're, you often counter critique. So, you know, you're very experienced with this argument. So what do people who say the government should fund a stadium or an entertainment venue, what's their case like in summary? What do they usually claim in your experience? Usually if you're building an arena or stadium, right, it's ostensibly because you want to either host concerts or live sporting events, right? I mean, that, that's the majority of what you're going to put in there. And so there's a certain element of civic pride that comes with being able to have, you know, Taylor Swift come to your city, or if you have an NHL team or an NBA team, NFL, CFL, whatever it is, the idea is that this, this is a source of pride. And uh, the idea then that somehow there's a benefit that comes to the city, uh, whether it's economically and that all of the tourists that come or, uh, you know, whether it's the, the athletes that are going to come, whether it's raising the profile of the city, the idea is that somehow this is something that should not be footed by the millionaire billionaire owners and that the city at least should contribute something to because there is a residual benefit that's going to the city. And so that that's usually the most uh, compelling economics case. Beyond economics, uh, there's the idea that if the city is going to get behind uh, investing in uh, like symphony orchestras or art galleries or other sorts of uh, public amenities, parks and things like that, well, an arena is just one of many different public amenities that they could get behind. The third one that they usually put forward is purely on an emotional level. They, they'll say, I don't know why, I just think that they should. And I mean, that's not exactly the, the game changer, but it, it's also something that it's very hard to negate. It's just something that they feel inside themselves that whether it's raising the profile of the city and giving it some sort of uh, big league sort of uh, recognition, uh, they just feel that it's it's appropriate that the government would help that sort of thing. And so, you know, if you want to take a look at um, like say the CFL, if we're purely looking at a Canadian standpoint, right? There's nine franchises uh, and the nine franchises for the most part are in the nine biggest Canadian cities, right? The cities that don't have, that are of a large scale like Quebec City or Halifax or whatnot might feel then that because they don't have a 20, 30,000 seat stadium or bigger, uh, somehow they're, they're second class within Canada, right? And so merely for the need that Quebec City is going to say, hey, we're no worse than Winnipeg. If Winnipeg has a stadium, then we should have a stadium. And so sometimes it's that sort of logic that they put forward that says that, well, that's why it's justified then for the government to use tax dollars for it. I'll say one last comment, uh, if I can drone on here. Of and that's the idea that 
you know, they don't even think about where the money's going to come from, right? That the government almost becomes like a, a living human a human entity, right? That if the same way that I said to you, hey, Alex, you should put up the money, or you said to me, you know, Moshe, you should put up the money. We say that the government should put up a money as if it's the third person in the conversation. And usually there's no thought given that, wait a second, that money doesn't come out of nowhere. That comes from taxpayers who are now going to have to decide whether they want a new hospital, a new school, or a stadium. And so sometimes those thoughts aren't even brought to their attention. And it's just, well, I don't know, the the government will do it um, as if it's asking for like your parents to do something or asking your child to go take care of putting away the dishes. On the last part there, and that obviously is tied to that emotional appeal angle that you're saying, right? People say, I don't know why they should just do it kind of thing. I guess from like an economics perspective, it's sort of easy for someone to say that, especially if they... On the one hand, as you said, they might be thinking the government is like this sort of th- third party out there that's not attached to them. But on the other hand, even if they do understand they're being taxed for it, the cost is ultimately dispersed. So in, in, th- in their mind, they're like, hey, like, it's easy for me to say me in a, in a small portion, as well as the rest of my neighbors should be funding this. It's ultimately an emotional appeal, even if the investment doesn't make sense. But we'll get to that in a sec. Yeah. And, and you know, there's a certain element here, too, of I I, I think that the the last 25 years, the, the phrase that we've seen from Hollywood that sneaks into some of these economic arguments is almost like the field of dreams analysis that, right. you know, if if you build it, he will come. And, and so the idea here is that if you if you ask the, the citizens and, and what do you think that stadium is going to host? Um, somehow the, the thought is that merely if we build an arena in downtown Saskatoon, uh, there's going to be an NHL team that's given to Saskatoon, right? Never mind that uh, it's not going to be full for 275 days of the year, or that merely because you build it, Taylor Swift is not going to say, I was planning on going to Winnipeg, but now that Saskatoon has one, hey, here's an extra stop for us. And so the reality is that even there, they're not thinking that um, even if it is financed by the government, even if they are prepared to put their tax dollars into it, there's this um, overconfidence that your city is important enough to now be a target for an NHL franchise or for a major concert venue or that you are going to be the next host of the World Hockey Championships or whatever it is. And, and so those are the the kind of um, economic uh, realities that they don't factor in. That's actually a really good point because, of course, we can't blame those who aren't in these industries for not knowing everything about it, but it's true. People often have, like, you know, one step, two step thinking about this, right? Oh, as you said, there's an arena. Oh, great. What happens at arenas? Events, entertainment. So, therefore, if we have an arena, as you said, people will go to that. But when you actually go into, like, the business to business angle of this, you're absolutely right. Most people don't think the literally, you know, thousands amount of decision makers that are uh, involved in bringing just like a concert to town, for instance. Instance, just because you build that arena doesn't mean that the management team of like, you know, I don't know, like when I like Genesis or something like that is going to say, hey, we're playing in Saskatoon. You know what I mean? That's a really good point. There's, you know, there's there's entertainment managers. This is that that's a whole industry. There's, uh, you know, other types of uh, like, you know, event managers and things like that that are involved in deciding when to actually bring their circus to town, if you will. So that's a whole different concept. Yeah. And, and you know, I'll, I'll say something that you'll certainly appreciate and, and your listeners will appreciate. Right. Um, the the longtime Washington Post writer, Tony Kornheiser, now uh, famously on Pardon the Interruption, has his own podcast. Um, he said for, for years that when people come up to him and say, you know, I could do your radio show, he laughs at them and says, you know, you might be able to do a Monday show. You might even be able to do a Tuesday show. But you tell me what you got on your Thursday show on the third week in May, 
And I'll tell you if you have a show or not, right? Like there's a point at which you might be able to fill up that arena the first day, the the second day, right? But six months in, do you have a, a fan base that's going to be loyal enough that they're willing to pay the ticket costs? And so forget from the, the management side and from the, the production side, is there enough interest to actually come to your town? In your town itself, do you have enough of a, a, a base that's going to be able to keep that arena full you know, 40 home games for an NHL season or uh, even nine games for a CFL season, right? So um, it's one of those things that from an economic standpoint, the very first thing that we teach any student is economics is all about choice because everything in life involves a trade-off. And so when taxpayers are not confronted with what is the trade-off here that you're prepared to make, you want to go have an arena built, that's fine. Are you prepared to commit to it? Maybe not you, 40 games out of a year, but are you and your friends? Because if you and your friends collectively can't fill a seat for 40 games, uh, then that money is being taken away from something that would be able to put to better use, right? A school is going to get used 250 days out of a year uh, because children are, are constantly in that school or there's a playground or there's a park area or so, you know, they're, they're not thinking in terms of those trade-offs and they're not thinking about what their further commitment is beyond just the idea of, yeah, I'm prepared to put up $500 of my tax dollars towards it. Fine. Are you then also prepared to go when your team is long eliminated from playoff contention? You have no interest in seeing the particular visiting team that's coming to town here in Canada. What interest do we have necessarily in seeing the Dallas stars come up here or the Nashville predators, right? If they don't have a superstar on the team, it's just some team that's thousands of kilometers away. So if you're not prepared to make that additional commitment and not just this year, but next year and the year after and a decade after, and if that arena is going to sit there for 30 to 50 years, you know, are you prepared to commit your children to that as well? Because they're going to have to take up for it. Um, it's just one of those things that uh, emotion is usually what's steering the pro side of it. There's very little compelling argument from an economics or financial standpoint. And so that's why it's always so contentious is because you're trying to argue numbers on one side and emotion on the other. And I want to drill a little bit into a couple more questions on, on the economics of, of the stadium itself. But before we get there, I'd one follow up to something you said about, you know, how, how these stories usually start and how people start thinking of maybe getting a stadium or entertainment venue in, in their city. This is going to be so obvious to you as, as someone that's that's deep into the subject all the time. But I'm still fascinated by this because I hear different stories, but I'm not sure what, what the usual is. So here's my question. What what usually happens with an arena proposition in the city? Is it usually, for instance, the counselors that think, oh, this would be great? Is it like a sports team or sports league, you know, t- starting to, you know, a bit of chat in a town saying, hey, if you had a stadium, we might bring a team here. Is it usually people that start bringing this up through polls? Is it is it everything I just said, depending on what city and what circumstance, what do we most often see when this topic starts in a city? It's a little bit of everything. It kind of depends on also what the size of the city is. So um, Seattle, for example, is about to get a, an NHL franchise that takes to the ice next year. They're probably going to get back their NBA franchise that they lost some time ago to Oklahoma City. And so they're going to go back to being one of those cities that actually has four professional sports teams. The the logic is that the sports leagues themselves will use the promise of a franchise as leverage to make city councillors blink and put up cash on the promise of, if you build it, we will come. Um, So for large cities, that's the type of thing that can usually be the motivation for having even the discussion in the first place, whether it actually plays out with public money going in or not, that's a different outcome. But the starting point could sometimes be that, hey, here's our chance, right? 
Um, Montreal wants to get back the, the Expos or some form of it. And so Major League Baseball has said, look, we're not averse to coming back to Montreal. We'd be willing to consider it. No promises made. But we got to tell you that if you don't have a downtown stadium and if you haven't abandoned the Olympic Stadium out in the East End, we're not even willing to have this conversation. Then that's the type of thing then all of a sudden. If you're a politician and you want to gain favor with the voters, sometimes it even starts in city hall or in city council where they say, all right, I'm going to get behind the stadium deal because, you know, sports is the opium of the masses, if I can maybe quote a more famous economist than I. Uh, and, and the idea then is that, well, I want to be associated with that. I want to get in on the ground floor and I want to be the one who's going to be there on opening day to throw out the first pitch, or I want to be the one who's going to uh, carry the Olympic flag or whatever it is that motivates their, their vanity uh, and their need to be popular among the people. Sometimes it starts there. Smaller cities will view it as a way to gain recognition. Even in a, a larger city, Calgary, for example, just went through a very contentious um, city referendum on whether they should host the 2026 uh, Winter Olympics. I shouldn't say host. Actually, it was even just should they bid on it, let alone host it. Um, it was kind of known that if they bid, they were going to win. Uh, but the issue there was that part of it was a, a huge amount of 1988 infrastructure was going to have to be updated. And, you know, in that case, then the idea that was put forward was that they were viewing it as this is a worthwhile investment because it will raise the city's profile globally. Never mind the fact that Calgary was, I think, the fourth most livable city, according to the Economist Intelligence Unit, um, beyond whether they hosted the Olympics or not. It already hosted a Winter Olympics. So whatever element you believe that it raises their world profile, it was already there because they're only one of like 20 cities to have ever hosted a Winter Olympics. But, you know, what's happening here then is that the motivation is um, that it's coming um, from the top down um, rather than from the IOC approaching them saying, hey, do you want to do it? So it, it can really come from anywhere. And in smaller towns uh, where the distinction between one town of 150,000 people and another town of 150,000 people is very, very small, um, the ability to host that key summer festival or to have that one-off event that that one time only that we actually make use of the stadium is the thing that's going to raise the profile. Um, that's sometimes the the tipping argument that this is kind of how we're going to outcompete our neighbors is that we're going to invest in this public infrastructure project that none of our other neighbors would dare contemplate. Um, and sometimes it's just as simple as that. Tying that into drilling into a little further on the economics itself. So like and then you trace at a high level, of course, at the beginning of our chat, but I want to get into a little, a little further. Um, so, so, you know, on a radio show, show I heard you on, uh, you claimed straight up with the host that, look, the, the economics are bad with funding stadiums. So, we, like I said, we talked a bit, a, a bit about it, but let, let's drill in deeper. You know, for instance, you've said whatever amount of money you're going to put into the stadium, you're not getting it back. Can you, can you elaborate further on this? Why are the economics, in your opinion, full stop, just bad if the governments are going to fund this? So you need to figure out then that if I'm going to lay out this money, first of all, the, the way that we would have to analyze it from an economic standpoint is not just an isolation of looking at the stadium or the arena, right? In dealing with trade-offs and dealing with opportunity costs, which is like the buzzword for um, economists, you need to look at that, okay, if that money is coming from somewhere else, then whatever benefits you might want to claim that the arena is going to bring anyway, you need to subtract from it the lost benefits of wherever you're diverting that money from. So if I'm going to put up, let's use as an example, then the, the Calgary arena deal that's now kind of the, the big one in Canada, they're, they're going to build a half billion dollar 
uh, arena to replace the saddle dome. And half of that money, at least, is coming from the city. And in this past week, um, the cost overruns have already exceeded 10% of the budget cost without even a shovel in the ground yet. So let's start thinking that you're going to have to come up with, as the city, around $300 million as of today. That $300 million is going to come away from, let's say, an expansion of their uh, LRT line, or it's going to come away from uh, hospitals, or it's going to come away from schools, or parks, or golf courses, or uh, city employees, or however it is that they're going to have to come up with this money. They can distinguish whatever way they want budgetarily that this is a capital project as opposed to current spending, whatever. They still have to come up with $300 million. So even if you tell me then that the 300 million is going to generate some economic activity, now start subtracting away what that lost LRT line is going to do. How much more are we going to now have to deal with traffic jams, congestion on the highways, uh, delays in uh, meeting times or uh, inefficiencies because people can't get from one end of the city to the other. Um, now start subtracting that out of the, the, the story here and all of a sudden the benefits start shrinking. The economic activity that you say is going to be created is probably that you're telling me that there are tourists coming or that there's going to be um, economic activity on game day where people go to the local bars and restaurants and things like that. But now you have to start subtracting out of that story that because there's a finite amount of hotel space in the city, it's not like you're building new hotels because there's a new arena. Right, so right. the fact is that if those hotels are already full, then fine. A Leafs fan is now going to come to Calgary to see the Leafs play the Flames. But that just means that somebody who would be coming from Stampede is squeezed out of the city. So the net impact of the tourist is zero, in fact, right? Um, if you say that people are going to go to the bars, that could very well be true. Uh, here in Montreal, we saw that the bars were as full as they could be during the Canadians' run in the, the Stanley Cup uh, playoffs this, this past year. Uh, but how many people next month are going to say, I'm not going for sushi this weekend because I used my money up going to five games in nine nights, uh, I don't have any more money left. So that lost sushi opportunity has to be subtracted out of the economic spending that went around the Habs. Somebody buys a Habs jersey, that means they're not going to Banana Republic to buy some other set of clothing, right? So when you start netting all of this stuff out, the fact is that the amount of actual economic activity that's created is pretty close to zero. And yet the city is still on the hook for $250, $300 million uh, that has now been diverted from something else. And so that's that's the easiest way to claim that th there's just no economic benefit. If you're looking at it through the narrow lens of, in economics, what we would call like a partial equilibrium analysis, if you just look at the stadium and the activity created by the stadium, you could maybe convince me that there's a positive benefit here. But proper economic analysis is that you have to look at the general equilibrium picture, not just the partial. And when you look at the big picture here, it's just you're just moving cash from one part of the economy to another. And so all you've done is take $250 million out of something that could have benefited all of the city and transferred it towards one small segment. And as a sports fan, I don't mind if that's being devoted to something I like. Uh, but the fact is that. Uh, it, it's it's playing redistribution uh, towards sports fans and towards a commercial enterprise, which itself is a bit of a problem. 
Right. No. Yeah. And, and as you're talking, it strikes me, you know, especially when we tie in everything together with the, the op- how people, of course, make make choices. They have a limited set of funds that whether they know it or not, they are considering opportunity costs to some degree and so on and so forth. As you were saying all that stuff, it strikes me as, as funny, too, that often when cities, maybe they'll do a poll to the people that live there or they'll just present their argument for the stadium. They often speak in very general terms, like, for instance, like, oh, we know that people want to go to more concerts here. And maybe someone did get a poll that said, you know, will you go to more concerts? Yes. But but they're thinking in their head, yeah, of course I'll go when these three bands come to town. That's more concerts to me, right? There isn't some sort of monolithic, maybe for some people there is, but there isn't some sort of monolithic idea of a concert that people are going to go to, as you said, every two weeks. Not, not everyone's going to like every act. Not everyone's going to like every sporting event. Some people don't like sports. So it's funny, again, as you were talking through that, people are, of course, going to make choices. It's not like this thing is slapped in and everyone's going to go to every act. Yeah, you're exactly right. And and even in the way that you you mentioned the idea of, you know, like a, a, a poll question or a referendum question, that actually did play out in Calgary, where the question that was asked was essentially, do you want to host the Winter Olympics? Well, if that's what you're putting in front of me as a yes or no, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> Why would I say no? I mean, other than the people of Tokyo right now who seem to be saying no, but that's more for health reasons. Hey, yeah, but you're not asking me, am I prepared to forego an extra this much in tax dollars or am I pre- uh, prepared to forego uh, this particular public amenity that's now going to be sacrificed in exchange for this one? And if you want to try and write a referendum question or a poll question that has that, unfortunately, the reality is too many people don't understand a question that runs on for three paragraphs and then you're presented with yes or no as the final outcome. And even if they understand the three paragraphs, yes or no is too blunt of a way to ask people their opinion because if I say no, it could be no with a but or no if or yes, except for like there's no room there for nuance. And so uh, when when these decisions are, are being handed over to the people, I mean, look, it's democracy. Fine. I get it. But the democracy takes place when you vote for the mayor, when you vote for city council. Right. This is what you're charging them with doing. You are now to represent me and pursue what you believe to be my best interest. If I find that you're not, I'll get you at the next election, right? Or I'll put up a candidate that can, or I'll do it myself or whatever it is. Um, But the idea of keep going to to asking people to try and evaluate half billion dollar projects, um, that's not their skill set. And maybe it's not politician skill sets either, uh, but it's a little bit disingenuous when you kind of pass the buck by going back to the people and asking them a poll question or asking them what's their opinion. Um, make that a campaign issue, point out where you stand. And it will become an issue, for example, in Calgary right now that with a mayoral election coming in the latter part of this year, the, the candidates are already starting to come out clearly on side with, uh, I want the stadium deal. I want to renegotiate the deal. I want to cancel it, I, whatever. Um, fine. Then once you voted for the particular position you like, then let them go about trying to manage the half billion dollar project without the need to constantly check up on the people like, are we cool with this? Once you put the shovel in the ground, you're kind of committed. You can't leave a half finished stadium there saying, uh, we realized it's a bad deal. Uh, so you better know from the the, the beginning uh, what you what you plan on doing. And to, and to tie off our our discussion of like the, the general economics around stadiums and entertainment venues and so on, so on and so forth. Um, right before the break here, I just want to put a finer point on everything you were sort of talking about. But this is this is a quote I found again from you when I was listening to a spot you're on on a radio. In everything we've just been saying, I think it's appropriate to say it here. So at the end of the day, you've said quote. There's really no case study where you see that public funds put into sports arenas or sports stadiums delivers an economic return 
better than just sticking it in a bond or putting it in other public services. And of course, I, I believe you when you're saying that, I me mean, personally, and I, and, I, and I tend to agree you, but I just thought to highlight that here and say, like, is, is that hyperbole, really? Can we can we not really even, other than a marginal case here and there, is there really no grand case study that at the end of the day, two, three, four years, five years, 10 years, whatever it is later, that the promises have ever even been like marginally fulfilled in terms of the investment. Uh, I, I wouldn't doubt it, but I'm just checking to see, is, was that hyperbole? Is that li- actually the case? So, so I'll, I'll give you uh, two different anecdotes here. And uh, one will kind of support my hyperbolic position. Uh, and the other one will give a little bit of a concession, but uh, it'll be a conditional one. So the, the, there was a study done about three or four years ago uh, that took a look at what would happen if all of the professional sports teams in Chicago were to leave town. So Chicago, of course, is home of the Blackhawks, one of the original six NHL franchises, the Cubs and the White Sox, two franchises that go back. uh, The White Sox were 1901. The Cubs go back even into the 1800s. The Bears are one of the original NFL teams. And the Bulls, of course, are the team of Michael Jordan, right? So here is a city that clearly loves its sports. And the study that was done was if all of those teams were to just leave tomorrow, the net impact on the Chicago economy would be approximately zero. Wow. And that's Chicago. And that's all of the teams, right? So, you know, even if you start looking then at, okay, what would happen to Green Bay if the Packers left, right? That's a that's a small town that probably otherwise nobody would have ever heard of except for the Packers. You could maybe make the argument then that, yes, that brings some level of economic benefit to the team. But notice that at least in part, that only happened when Brett Favre came to town, followed by Aaron Rodgers, right? They've had 30 years of fine, they've only won two Super Bowls. But in those 30 years, they have been a high profile, high exposure franchise. Now, if they had been playing with the Chicago Bears quarterbacks for the last 30 years, they would be an also ran. Nobody would find it charming to go to Green Bay to watch a game because nobody's going to that far north from the U.S. perspective, at least, um, to that cold of an environment to watch a second-rate team. So, you know, notice that in that case, then, it's not the stadium, it's not the arena that's creating the economic benefit, it's the actual players on the field. And if you say that, well, you have to have the arena and the stadium to have the players, that's fine. But that's a huge gamble for a city to put up cash, thinking that the private company that runs the team is going to be able to field uh, a set of players that are going to be able to deliver sustained interest for 20, 30 years. Vegas has become a hockey town because they've done well for four years. But what happens when that team starts stinking? Nashville had those tens of thousands of fans lined up to Uh, cheer on the team when they went to the Stanley Cup final a few years back, but that was because they went to the Stanley Cup final, right? So uh, the idea that somehow we conflate the idea with building a stadium and building a winner, these aren't the same thing. Now, I did say that I would give you kind of at least a small concession. Um, You can find stories where building a stadium has brought a huge amount of economic development around it, but I would challenge that the causality is probably reversed. It's that because there was economic activity that was already underway or that was already planned, when you drop the arena in there, that can turbocharge that neighborhood. So Edmonton will happily show off their ice district. They'll say that that area west of 109th Street uh, rapidly exploded and they'll attribute it wrongly to the arena that they built. The thing is that that area around the ice district was already starting to show signs of accelerated growth so that when they dropped the arena in, 
that turbocharged the growth. It's not the arena that caused the growth. And so that's another mistake that's commonly made is that they'll say, well, you see, because of the arena, look at what happened. No, no, no. It was, there was something already there, whether it was millennials that were looking to move into that area or because there was already this grand design of, uh, you know, the ability to move around bars and restaurants and uh, high density residential areas without having to need uh, massive public infrastructure that, hey, giving me one more option on a night when I want to go out that I can now go to this particular arena as opposed to this particular bar. But that's not the arena. And so for any time that somebody comes forward and says, yeah, but what about this city that grew because of the arena? That's not the story. They were already growing and the arena was just one part of that growth. And actually with that, I think that's an excellent time as well to take our break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Moshe Lander today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Joe Aragona, John Robson, and Chris Rondolo. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, follow the ILS on Twitter, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Moshe Lander today. So, Moshe, I think the first half was great. I think we talked about a lot of different things about the economics around sports and stadiums, entertainment venues, and so on, and if there's actually a case for it. And before I drill into a couple of other things I wanted to talk about, I want to bring us back to the high level for, for, for one point for just a second to make sure that your position's clear in, in all the discussion. Some people aren't getting lost between public and private funding. So, of, of course, as I'm listening to you here, um, my understanding is, again, that you're not saying that, you know, an arena or a sports team, whatever, in and of itself, as you're sort of saying towards the tail and before a break there, is just not going to bring any economic benefits to a town. And then there's no and there's no you know reason to have one around at all, or these aren't good ideas, or they wouldn't be good private investments. We're all tying this back to the idea of whether the government should be funding these stadiums, right? That's ultimately our question here today. It's not to say, for instance, a private investor group might see this um, as a good idea, and you're saying, no, it's not. That might be the case. We're talking about when this ties back to public funding, correct? Now, absolutely. If, if you if you tell me that a private ownership wants to grow, do it, I, I'm totally on board with that, right? Uh, because it does bring them economic benefit. If you take a look at professional sports franchises, uh, let's talk among the big four, at least. I, I won't include the CFL here because they're a different sort of sports model. But if you take a look at the NHL or NBA, Major League Baseball, NFL, those are winning propositions if you're an owner. Um, Steve Ballmer, a few years back, bought the Los Angeles Clippers, a a perennial loser franchise. Uh, And at the time, it was for an eye-watering $2 billion. Uh, Now, Ballmer just cut a check because his wealth was so much in excess of that. He he actually just uh, crossed the $100 billion wealth point uh, a couple of days ago. Um, He just wrote a check and said, here you go. Um, That investment is now probably around $5 billion for him. So he's made 150% return on his investment, and he's going to continue to own that franchise for however long he wants to continue to be a courtside fan. Uh, To to put up half a billion dollars, a billion dollars of his own cash to to build an arena where he captures 100% of the economic activity that goes on inside that arena that's a fantastic proposition. The problem is that when cities get involved in building arenas, 
they don't get 100% of that economic rent. That goes to the sports franchise, to the concert promoter, to whoever else is going to take their piece. And what's left behind with the city is a wink, wink arrangement that we're committed to your town as long as we feel that it's in our best interest. But if we decide to up sticks and move somewhere else, you're on the hook for that arena and it's sitting empty. Um, that's where it's a losing business proposition for cities. So no, I, I'm totally behind private ownership groups wanting to build arenas uh, and stadiums. I, I, I think that that's the vehicle that charges their wealth um, with, with that fantastic growth. You can't own a franchise if you don't have an arena. So uh, take a look at the Jerry Joneses of the world that build billion dollar stadiums in, in Dallas and man, he gets his return. Uh, LA is about to unveil their new football arena. It did open last year, but it was empty because of COVID. Uh, but when you get a look at that thing with fans inside, man, that's going to change your view of uh, what a stadium should look like. Uh, Golden State uh, basketball moved out of Oakland and into downtown San Francisco into a billion dollar arena. Usually the stadiums are the ones that cost over a billion dollars. This was a, an arena that's a billion dollars. Uh, again, when the fans come back and you see that thing full, man, it looks amazing. Uh, but those are dollars that are put forward by the billionaire owners that see that as an investment uh, as part of their ownership. I, I don't have any problem with us. And as so we've talked about the public expenditure, now we've talked about the private expenditure. So just drilling a bit deeper into the, the in-between, I guess. So some will, will always insist, well, like, well, then here's the answer then. You know, a very specific type of public-private partnership is the way to go, right? Whether it's at the very least some sort of tax break or nice arrangement, that's the public part of it, then the private part's the investment, or there's an in-between, some money here from the public side, some money here from the private side, etc. You know, some people say that that's the way to go. But, but even in these, it seems to me as though, like my bias is that the public often finds itself cushioning risk ultimately or circumstances for private interest. I mean, if, if a private investment group wants to you know, say, say, hey, we have 300 million ready here as long as you do X, Y, and Z, A, B, C, that, that X, Y, Z, A, B, C is the part that's missing from making it fully attractive to a full private investment, if you see what I'm saying. That's the part that always worries me with the public-private discussion. Yeah, and, and remember that what you're doing too is you're also distorting markets, right? That you're, you're having the, the private companies go to the public sector and say, do us this favor, but that favor isn't being extended to everybody, right? So whether that's a tax break or accelerated uh, amortization or depreciation of your asset or whatever accounting tricks that, you know, while perfectly legal, um, are they're asking for, um, that's not being extended to every other private enterprise. So you're creating this stratified sort of system where uh, because you're a sports franchise, you're entitled to this tax break. But if I'm looking to build an Amazon distribution center, uh, I'm not entitled to that. If I want to have a shopping mall, I don't get this tax break. But uh, if I want to try and maybe court an NBA franchise, I do. That that becomes a problem. We, we saw that, again, Calgary is the, the main example these days because they're kind of going through it in real time with their new arena. Uh, a few years back when the arena issue started to, to surface, um, the ownership group said, we've got a perfect location for a new arena. It's over here in the West Village, uh, which is a growing part of Calgary, already growing. Uh, and it's the site of the, the bus station, the, the Greyhound station is, is where they wanted the arena. And they went to the city and they said, here's a perfectly valid offer we're making for you. You clean up the contaminated part of that bus station site. It used to be, I think, a furniture factory before that, that had all kinds of creosote poured into the, the groundwater and, and soil around it. They said, you go ahead and clean that up for us and we'll happily put an arena on top of it. And the city said, well, what's the cleanup going to cost? 
And the ownership group shrugged and said, I don't know, 5 million, 50 million, whatever. Um, right from their standpoint, they, they and they tried to sell this to the public as this was like a selfless sacrifice on the, their part, right? All we're asking for the city to do is just clean up that site, right? That's not, you know, um, but the idea here was that, um, fine, e even if the city said, we're going to go and clean up that site, I mean, there's probably some value in cleaning up a contaminated site within the downtown of a city. Um, but it also meant that the bus station was going to have to relocate. So where is that land going to come from, right? So now is the bus station going to say, wait a second, if we're going to have to re relocate here, uh, you, the city, you're going to put up that cash? So notice that it's a it's an extra cost. And if you move the bus station to whatever site it is that you want to move them to, maybe there was somebody who was planning on putting an office building up there or a residential neighborhood was going to go up there, or maybe nobody has plans for it for now, but in five years, that was going to be a strategic point for wherever it is that the city goes. So, you know, to, to view it as, this is merely a harmless sort of uh, break that's not at least one of those novelty check uh, situations of here's all of us posing in front of a check for $500 million. The fact is that it's not just that amount that you're distorting. You're, you're creating these knock-on effects that have huge implications. And don't forget, too, that it could be spilling over into neighboring cities. So if you imagine, for example, that Hamilton comes forward and says, we're going to put up a, a billion dollars to, to build a, a flashy state-of-the-art hockey arena because we really want a hockey team, beyond the fact that the Leafs and the Sabres would never allow for a team in Hamilton to invade their territory. The, the fact is, though, that the NHL might pressure the Leafs and the Sabres to uh, forego their territorial rights because they want to make use of this billion-dollar arena. Think of the economic implication then that Buffalo all of a sudden could make the claim that they are losing economic activity now because whatever amount of fans were coming from Canada down the QEW into Buffalo are no longer coming at all. Um, the fans that were going to Buffalo to watch those games might now be going up to Hamilton, uh, especially if Hamilton does better and these days who can't be doing better than the Sabres. So it's the type of thing that you actually could be distorting not just your city, but neighboring cities and the tax bases that come with it. So it's, it's really dangerous when you get into these sorts of ideas that we won't give you the actual money, but we'll do it this way for you. If you're not doing that for everybody, then you're distorting markets. And that's not always a good thing. Right. Yeah. No, I really like that point about the market distortion, too, especially like you said, the unseen effects or the ripple effects and the knock on effects, because, you know, at some someone might come to the table and always say, well, this isn't like market distortion and, and you know, planning. That's like, you know, socialist country stuff. What we're doing here is just providing this incentive or we're going to clean this up and then the steam is going to be built. But as you said, when you really flesh out the case, at what point does that tax break there with this 500 million investment there, which disincentivizes, as you said, the strip mall and the office tower whatever and makes it only so you know an arena is going to go there at, th at that point you, as you said that's that's market distortion to like a, a radical point where you're you're effectively creating the circumstance where only certain people's entities plans are going to move ahead and that's not the kind of thing we want we don't want the government at least in my view like incentivizing is one thing but effectively in effect directing what kinds of investments people are going to be making yeah and and you know the other problem is that especially in a, a lot of modern arena and stadium deals it, it doesn't just end with the stadium itself so one of the things that a lot of the ownership groups have realized is that if they can generate their own economic activity in and around the arena and stadium that they're being subsidized uh with to begin with um, they could make the plausible claim to the city that see all of this new economic activity that's gone up around it, 
uh, that can be attributed to us, right? Now, I, I said before the break that that's not in fact the case, right? It, the causality is backward, but you know, the the average voter is not going to see it that way. They're going to merely see that you know because A happened first and then B happened second, A must have caused B. That's as silly as saying that because I left my apartment this morning with uh, an umbrella and then it rained in the afternoon that I caused the rain by taking the umbrella, right? It, it, it's crazy logic, but you know, people will somehow see it that way. When the owners then go to the the city council, and sometimes it's the councilors themselves that believe it too, they'll say that, look, if there's any economic activity that comes up around the arena in the next five to 10 years, we want some portion of the property tax that's generated by those businesses. If you think about it, then once you can convince the city that that's the way to go, you can build the surrounding residential high rises or the businesses, because when you go to pay the property taxes that you're supposed to, basically 50% of it comes back to you because you said that any economic activity that's created, I get half of that. And so you're basically then getting a second subsidy. And so take a look around Lansdowne Park in Ottawa, take a look at around the Bell Centre in Montreal, and take a look in the next five to 10 years, what's going to happen around that new arena in Calgary, that effectively, the economic activity that's being created around it is at least in part being generated by the owners of the teams that got the subsidized uh, arena in the first place. So it's almost like they're they're living off of their original sin uh, by creating these further ones. The, the, you know, the concern that I had in Calgary, and I, I will say for full disclosure, I'm a Flames fan. I love the Calgary Flames. So, you know, it's not like I, I have something against sports or I have something against that city. I love them. Uh, but the fact is that when they signed that deal, they also staked out a claim where they said, we'll be able to, if we want Uh, get first crack at the surrounding land if we want to later develop it for other purposes. And of course they do. They're going to put up you know, high rise residential. The thing is that on the other side of the LRT line near where the, the new saddle dome is going to be, there's already residential high rises that are going up being put up by private property developers. Those developers should be infuriated that, wait a second, we had to pay market land prices in downtown Calgary to put this up. And that money is going to have to be clawed back by either, you know, selling off condos or uh, rents on the, the various units uh, or the amenities that we are or are not going to be able to provide because we have to come up with all of this cash. Uh, yet somehow there's going to be a high rise that's going to go up 100 meters from us that's going to be even more luxurious or even taller or going to, uh, and they're getting it with subsidized land from their own deal connected to the arena. Like it, 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 it's so distortionary. Um, but this is exactly the game that these private ownership groups know how to play because the cities continue to blink. If you don't give it to me, then you will quickly find that the Calgary Flames will be the Houston Flames because I know that they're interested. And then they go down to Houston and they play the game with Houston saying, you know, if you want us to come, the only way we're going to consider this. And so it's a huge leverage game. Uh, and, and nobody wants to be the one that is remembered for losing the franchise. Um, Art Modell famously took the Cleveland Browns, who were a beloved team, and moved them to Baltimore, and the city hung him in effigy. I mean, they they literally hung him in like they they that guy was never allowed to go back to Cleveland again um, because he chased profits. And I, I don't have a problem with him chasing profits, but it was it was the scam that he pulled where he played Cleveland off of Baltimore. And when Baltimore stepped up saying, hey, we'll give you this beautiful new stadium, 
He said, thanks for the memories, Cleveland. I'm out of here. Um, it, it's a game that they're skilled at playing. It's just amazing that politicians keep falling for it. It reminds me of a subheading I saw. It wasn't the headline of the article. It was the subheading once you clicked into it. It said something along the lines of business group says stadium would have positive economic impacts. And the article was about them wanting the, the city to chip in. And it says, but sports economists dispute that. And I'm like, well, th- that's it in a nutshell, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I'm reminded uh Gosh, it's got to be 25, 30 years ago now. Go back and take a look at, you know, a really old Simpsons episode uh, where uh, Springfield is scammed into building a monorail. Um, and uh, in that episode, it, it's it's the sports arena equivalent, right? That you, you find this small town set of rubes that, uh, you know, they, they want to buy into the hype of all of the benefits that these are going to bring. And the next thing you know, they're falling all over themselves to build something that nobody really wants in the first place, or nobody really needs, or viewed a different way, I, I guess, if I want to maybe lay off a little bit on the, the civic leaders, let's play a different story here. If you could really tell me how compelling a privately built arena or stadium were, how valuable that really is, um, wouldn't we find that all of the local civic leaders from the business community would be falling all over themselves to get it done? Uh, group partnerships here where, you know, the, the five biggest uh, businesses in town would each contribute $10 million, $20 million. Um, where would the, the business chamber of commerce or, you know, where, where are they in these stories? You, you never hear them running out saying, get this done. There's nothing more we need in the city right now than that arena or stadium. The fact that they're consistently silent is kind of one of these things like, I can't believe that this is going to work. Right. Um, and if nothing else, they view it as, and if it works, then this is going to give us the ability to now go to the city and say, well, we want ours too. We want our subsidy. We want our, like, we're bringing way more jobs than the arena's bringing. So you gave them money. Where's ours? And if you don't want to give it to us, we're not that committed to having our headquarters here in the city. So, you know, it, it really is a kind of a giant scam that's going on that, uh, you know, the, the business leaders and the private ownership groups know how to play exceptionally well. Uh, and every time that they succeed, it merely sets in motion the next scam that's going to come up in a different city because you just use the playbook from the previous one. And that's that's how it goes. Yeah, it's an excellent point, right? The, the student of markets should know that, you know, that there's incentives to push people towards private interests towards, you know, revenue and profit making opportunities. It's not the same story when you say this business thinks there's a great revenue and profit making opportunity after $500 million just kicked in from the city, right? That's a whole different discussion. Yeah. And and the teams can afford to play a long game in a way that maybe the, the cities don't seem prepared to play, right? So, um, you know, the Saddle Dome is now pushing 40 years old. Okay. It's not as old as Maple Leaf Gardens was, or the Montreal Forum was, you know, those got into their sixties and seventies. So, you know, maybe the Saddle Dome has a few years left in it, but because the flames can always just up and leave town, it does give them leverage in a way that city leaders can't like, oh, fine. Mayor Nenshi is saying that he's not going to run in the next election. So he is effectively leaving town, right? But, you know, there's going to be another mayor that comes along. Like you, you, you can't run away as civic leaders from the city, but the sports team can. So it's not even a fair contest to begin with when they're having this, um, you know, stare down. It's, it's you know, the two prize fighters looking at each other. One of them is seven feet tall and the other one's five foot six having to look up at them. Um, it, it's not a fair stare down here. And so, you know, it, the, the thing is that uh, especially in, in, 
in the current world in which we found ourselves in the last five years or so, maybe based on other politicians in other countries, um, experts are not to be trusted. It seems that, you know, that somebody sticks a mic in my face and says, what do you think? I say it's a bad idea. And they say, ah, he's an idiot. Um, <laughs> I am I might be an idiot, but not on this topic. I'm not. Um, you know, what, why would you seem to think that despite all of the evidence in this particular case, you know better. Well, he doesn't know the local lay of the land or he doesn't. Well, no, I, I don't have to know the local lay of the land. Doesn't know the what fact, hockey means to this town or whatever. Right, they say. right. But the fact is that, you know, there's there's 120 professional arenas and stadiums around North America, and you're not going to be able to find one that uh, spun a profit for the city that built it for them. I really like your, your the, the, the image, you're, the mental image you're creating with the with the sort of um, contrast between what's mobile mobile and what's not right if a city gets involved in a stadium puts up millions of dollars you know they have a tax base that's there you know and there's they're stuck with this thing whether it's a good investment or not but you know i'm picturing like you know at the end of a concert when you see all those con concert truck 18 wheelers just they pack up and move their act on or or a sports team you know there's they use the arena but they are ultimately like you said mobile in nature ultimately that's an interesting point right is that you're stuck with this investment here whether or not whatever act or team or whatever it wants or, or says and pitches to the city they have the opportunity to move and that, that that's really interesting too because it's a sort of a captive investment if you will i'm not sure if that's actually a term but yeah and and it's it's not just a captive investment to use your phrase for for the length of the arena itself it it, it has a legacy cost even beyond that so um you know i mentioned edmonton with their beautiful new downtown arena that's fine um when they were about to open the arena there was a discussion in the city about and and what did we do with the current old arena right the the famous northlands coliseum the the home of wayne gretzky and all of those championships in the 1980s what do we do with it so again you know somebody says to me well what should we do i said knock it down <laughs> you know knock it down and turn it into something useful but all of a sudden then you find that there's pressure that comes back no 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 and that's a landmark and that needs to now be protected and Okay, so now not only have you put up money towards the new arena, but you're now going to protect the old arena for what? You you don't need two 18,000 seat arenas in that city. And it's not like you're going to have one concert going on here at the same time that another concert's going on there. So now it's not just the 250 million towards the arena, but it's going to be the tens of millions of dollars every year for a decaying arena. And if you do want to knock it down, that's fine. But notice that somebody's going to come along and pull the the stunt of, well, it's probably contaminated from all of those years. It was built with materials or asbestos or whatever that was thought to be a good idea at the time. So in order for us to be able to use that for private land to develop something on it, we also need you to clean up that land. And so it, it's, it, you know, your, your analogy that hey, when the circus leaves town or when the 18-wheelers rumble off or whatever, you're still left with the arena. But it's even more than that. It's even when the team has moved on to the next site, what do you do with that? In Atlanta, I think Atlanta right now, the, the Braves are playing in their third baseball stadium in the last 25 years. They use the Olympic Stadium from the 96 games and use that as a replacement for Fulton County Stadium. Then they moved into a second stadium even after that. And I think they're now in the third. So I guess conceptually, then we could say they're even in their fourth stadium since 1995, right? Now, those were publicly uh, or those were privately paid for, uh, but each of the counties surrounding Atlanta was falling all over themselves to be the place that was going to host that, right? So now you have all of these stadiums, um, fine, you dynamite this one and blow it up. Um, but 
that itself leaves, you know, demolition costs and reconstruction costs. And it, it, it just, it goes on and on and on uh, in, in a way that there's no end for the taxpayers. So if you hand it over to Ted Turner back at the time and say, hey, you find the land, you pay the commercial price, you build it, you pay the taxes. Uh, and if you can't find a good deal, uh, the Chicago example, you're not going to cost us anything uh, beyond just the fact that we lose the team. Uh, go ahead, uh, try and find somewhere else. It's it's one of those things, though, that these sorts of collusive arrangements where the cities now need to collude and say, we're not falling for this. Nobody blink. Nobody break ranks here. That's that's the problem. And I have one more question before we move on to our formal wrap up here, which is basically, you know, we've talked about sports teams and venues, but there's a little bit. Of, and this might be a very short answer because you might just say no. But, it's, you know, there's a little bit of variation between like, you know, for instance, an indoor stadium where you would host hockey and outdoor stadium for football in your experience and in your study of the matter. Is there any reason to be talking about the difference between an outdoor football stadium or like a sort of Coliseum style hockey arena, like, you know, whether it's embedded into the downtown and and in like, you know, a larger skyscraper or on its own? Like, you know, is there any variation? Or are we ultimately just talking about entertainment venues and the whole conversation applies, you know? So the, the short answer is no. OK, cool. Fair <laughs> but, enough. but merely to give you and, and, and the listeners a little bit more insight to just what no means. So you know, if you go back 90 years ago, 90 years ago, uh, there was an economist named Harold Hotelling who wrote not about a sporting context, but he basically said that if you're looking to locate, say, a factory, there's this inherent trade off that on the one hand, if you locate the factory too far from where your your customers are, you incur that huge transportation cost. Uh, but you do save on the land price. Uh, if you put the factory where the customers are, you save on the transportation costs, but you incur the high land price of being where all the people are, right? So there's this tug of war that where you locate is to kind of balance the marginal benefit against the marginal cost, right? The extra land price is justified by the extra savings in transportation. So if you go back and take a look at the 1960s, 1970s model, you would build a lot of these arena stadiums, open air, closed air, whatever. They were on the outskirts of town, right? And so any listener who's old enough, say 40 years or older, will probably have some sort of recollection of if they went to an arena, it was very often on the outskirts of town, such as it was at the time. Even the Montreal Forum, which you would say is, no, that's in downtown Montreal, um, 40, 50 years ago, 80 years ago, when, you know, the stadium was constructed, that was in Westmount. That wasn't even in Montreal. It was in a different town altogether, right? The idea was that based on Hotelling's view, you build it far enough away because everybody doesn't mind driving, right? The, the zeitgeist of the time was that driving was a symbol of freedom. And so everybody moving like lemmings out of town to go to the arena, and then everybody turning around driving like lemmings back into the town uh, was justified. Eventually, it's replaced maybe by public transport, that there's bus or shuttle service or LRTs or subway lines or whatever that link it up. Um, the, the move into downtown is effectively kind of trying to rebalance that trade-off between if you're too far away, Everybody has that transportation cost, but if nobody wants to pay that transportation cost anymore, then you have to come to where your customers are. But notice that that now is going to require that you have to make use then of scarce downtown land uh, at high prices because of its scarcity. Um, this is now going to impose a cost. And again, it's just one more compelling argument that ownership groups put forward for saying, well, if you're not going to give us that downtown arena and you're going to force us all the way out, then we want a whole set of public infrastructure that's going to come around it. We want to be linked up to the subway line. We want to be linked up to an LRT line. We want a direct shuttle service that's going to like all of a sudden the, the demand starts kind of 
going back on the city that will either give us this or give us this. Uh, pick your poison. And so the idea of closed or open is going to bring the same sort of kind of benefit and cost sort of analysis. Closed roof um, arenas are are the 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 way for all of them. There, there is no open air arena. In the case of a football stadium uh, or a baseball stadium, those can be open or closed. Generally, that's going to be a function, at least in part of climate. Um, Toronto kind of naturally needs a closed roof, maybe not as grandiose as the Skydome was in its day. But the fact is, you can't be playing baseball in April, October, and maybe even May and September when you could be touching zero degrees. Um, but at the same time, you know, in Miami, they needed a closed roof arena. Um, because they said the temperature isn't the problem. It's the monsoon rains that can come in during hurricane season, or it's even the 95% humidity that who's going to want to sit outside for a four-hour baseball game. So sometimes it's it's merely just a factor of if we're going to build it, and if we expect that they're going to come, we need to at least provide them. Now, just as a counter case, I'll mention that Minnesota um, replaced the old, um, uh, the Humphrey Dome, uh, the the Metrodome, that's it. Uh, they replaced the Metrodome uh, with an open air football stadium. Uh, their view was that they said that Minnesotans aren't going to mind sitting out for eight days a year in minus 30 weather. But if it makes it uncomfortable for the visiting team, hey, this could be a home field advantage. So here was a case where they actually moved from indoors to outdoors when the climate would clearly scream, don't do that. Um, right. So sometimes the argument is not necessarily even an economics based one, because it's it's inherently that you're adding some degree of cost by closing out the stadium. Uh, but uh, if it brings comfort to the people that are sitting in the stadium, cost benefit analysis might say that's justified. We can charge higher ticket prices to make it worth it. Uh, but the fact is that, again, is it going to change the fact that uh, this concert is or isn't coming? No, the concert's just going to come when the weather justifies that I don't mind being outdoors versus I don't mind now coming through on the winter leg of my tour. And it's actually about that time where we head to our formal wrap up. So we're going to do that right now. So let me say, Moshe, we, we, we talked about a lot. Uh, and in each episode, I want to make sure the guest ultimately has the last words to try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether governments should build stadiums and, and this whole conversation overall? In other words, if you wanted to leave someone with one or two or a few takeaways on everything we've talked about, what would that be? The economics case for publicly funding arenas and stadiums, it's just not there. Now, if you want to look beyond the economics, if you say that it is a civic pride thing and I'm prepared to pay any amount of my limited tax dollars for that, I have no problems with that. That's that's up to each city to decide how they want to use their tax dollars, right? Uh, but I think what they need to understand is that if they're being sold that this arena is going to bring activity, if it's going to bring benefits, it's going to bring jobs, it's going to bring all of these wonderful things, that's not true. And so I, I don't have a problem with any taxpayer that wants to put their own money into uh, an arena. Just make sure that you're fully informed about that those benefits aren't there. Uh, and then the hard questions need to be asked. What is it that you're really being asked to give up then, right? What's the opportunity cost? What's the trade-off that's being put in front of you? And if you're being told there is no trade-off, hey, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. So uh, somebody is completely misleading you. And I, I think that's kind of the main takeaway is, uh, know what those trade-offs are. If you're prepared for it, if you're okay with it, then, hey, good for you. And I'll happily come to your town and watch the game that's being put on in that that arena. 
but other than that, uh, it, it's 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 usually a loser's game, and and that's the unfortunate part. I think that's an excellent place to leave it. So Moshe Lender, thank you very much for joining me on the Curious Task today. Anytime. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. 